Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to Green Templeton College at St Anne's. Um, I'd like to begin by expressing my sincere thanks to the principal and fellows of, of St Anne's who have been very helpful to the college during the period when we are remodelling um, our um, advanced study centre and improving the AP Abraham Lecture Theatre. And many of the major lectures sponsored by the college this year will actually take place here. Um, I'm David Watson, Principal of Green Temple College, and I'd like to offer a very warm welcome on behalf of the college to the annual McGovern Lecture for 2012. Uh, the McGovern, lecture, uh, McGovern Lectures are endowed by a long-term benefactor of the college, the late Dr. John McGovern from Houston, Texas. And Dr. McGovern made provision for an annual lecture in his name on a topic in the history of medicine. The college's academic committee, which offers the invitations each year, alternates between inviting scholars from the United States and the UK, and has tried to, uh, over the last 12 years at least, to cover the full scope of the history of medicine. This is the 12th lecture in the series, and we've broken the sequence for a reason. We're staying in the UK this year, even though last year's lecture was given by Helen King of the Open University. And that's because last Sunday was the 100th birthday, or would have been the 100th birthday, of Sir Richard Dahl. And we intend to look back this evening at that century. Our guide for the McGovern Lecture this evening will be the second Sir Richard, very well known to all of you, Sir Richard Peter, Professor of Medical Statistics and Epidemiology in the university here, and founder in 1975 of the CTSU of which he and Rory Collins have been uh, co-directors now for, for many years. And R Richard, I think, has maintained this wonderful reputation built on Dole's work of meta-analysis of results from related trials that achieve uniquely reliable assessment of treatment effects and of um, epidemiological uh, conditions. I can't think of a better guide to... Uh, this topic this evening, and um, Richard is going to speak on halving premature death over the past century. Please welcome Sir Richard Peter. Thanks, David. Um, okay, halving premature death. We can't avoid dying. Richard Dahl's slogan was death in old age is inevitable, but death before old age is not. And in fact, we've just had a meeting over the last three days, starting on his birthday, 28th. So the 28th to the 31st, we've had a meeting with people coming from all around the world, you know, showing epidemiological results on smoking, drinking, blood pressure, all this and the other things, you know, the things that kill you before you're old. And it went really well. And so there was some TV interview with me afterwards saying, you know, what would Richard Doll have thought if he'd actually been here to see this? And I said, he'd have been actually quite annoyed at still being alive. He didn't believe in living to 100. <laughs> he, just, he, just, he just wanted to avoid primitive death. So, um, so what's premature? Well, obviously, there's no hard and fast rule. I'm 69, so I'll define primitive death as anything less than 70. <laughs> but I've, been doing this, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, you've got to consider separately ages 0 to 4, Five, well, it could even be age naught, but early childhood, later childhood, early adult life, and then middle age, which I'll define as 35 to 69. Um, it, it doesn't really matter where you put this cut in. Mean, you can say naught to 14 as childhood and then 15 to 34, early adult life. Um, you, you want groups where the causes are very different. The causes of infant mortality, childhood mortality, are actually very different from the causes of death in middle age. And I don't like life expectancy because it mixes together all these different things in a way that you, in a way that you can't separate, you can't make sense of. You know, somebody says life expectancy in a country is 50. What does that mean? Does that mean that a quarter of the kids die in the first, in the first year of life? Or does it mean you've got an HIV epidemic? You can't, you can't tell what it means. But if you look separately at child mortality, early adult mortality, and then 35, I'll take 35 to 69, then you can talk sense about what are the causes, what are the avoidable causes. And the reason I chose this age range is it's old enough 
the, the cancers, the heart attacks, the strokes start kicking in, what we call the chronic diseases, um, rather than just the infections and accidents and so on, which is what predominates before. And I stopped at 69, because if you go too old, then actually people don't say it, but they think you'd be better dead anyway. <laughs> if you start doing things to reduce mortality around people in their 80s, well, you know, that's fine, you know, a lot of very fine people in their 80s, but on average, a lot of them would be better dead. I <laughs> speak <laughs> 69. The only thing about 69 is, if, if you die in your 60s, then on average, you're still avoiding, you're still losing about 15 good years. If you're healthy now, then you could well have 15 good years left, more than 10 good years left anyway. Whereas if you die in your 80s, then you don't have very many more good years left. So we're talking about deaths that involve quite a lot of loss of life, deaths where people feel that on human term they matter, um, and deaths also where if you've got, usually you've got something that the person died of. If somebody's dying in middle age, there's usually a disease, and if they haven't had that disease, then they wouldn't have died in middle age. Whereas when you get into old age, there's lots of things going wrong simultaneously, and if one thing doesn't get you, the next one will. So it, it, it does make sense to still call this primitive death. I don't, earlier on, people used to try and go just up to 59, and that didn't seem to be far enough. It did, so I've tried to argue for global health, when we're talking about adult mortality globally, really to be concerned with mortality up to 69, um, and it makes it more more relevant in, in comparison with child mortality. It makes the numbers more relevant, as, as you'll see. Okay. Um, I want to start off with an example from the past, and if you've seen this before, then please don't share that. But it's, it's quite an interesting one. And these are... What is this? Well, this is the percentage still alive. And what are they? Well, they're humans, and this is 18 years. <coughs> so this is age 70. You see, a lot of them are dying in early childhood. And then a lot more are dying in early middle age. If the battery runs out on the laser pointer, does that mean I can't change my PowerPoints? Mm -hmm. So you've got a lot dying early adult life, and then you've got quite a lot dying in middle age. So, yeah, what are these? And it's French males born in 1896, they were unlucky enough, so a quarter of them died in early childhood, because that was just the average for Britain and France and all over Europe. You could find places that were worse than that. You could go to the sort of east end of London or the middle of Liverpool. Then you, you could have half of them die before, before they were old. Then they were male when they finished up coming into the First World War. And a third of those who reached early adult life were dead by the end of the First World War. And then of those who reached middle age, about half of them died before they were 70, which is a much bigger risk than we've got now. And so you've got this pattern. And it, I, I think there was a, one of the perks of the First World War says one, said one dies of war like any old disease. And, and I think it's fair enough. I think we ought to be thinking of death from murder, violence, suicide, war, deaths from epidemics, deaths from cancer, deaths from... You know, I think we should think of all these things and think, you know, what are people losing from these sorts of death and treat these as being avoidable causes of death, just in the same way that disease is. So, you know, in the 20th century, we had about 200 million people died in wars and famines caused by war, and probably had about 2,000 million child deaths. Okay, uh, I want to... We've, we've just got the data from the Registrar General for the year 2010, and the Registrar General started counting deaths in Britain back in the 1830s and 1838, and during the 1840s, 1850s, you know, the numbers weren't perfect, but they were getting good. By, by 1860, we were really good at counting the dead. There are some other countries, Sweden, that were doing it before, but Britain was ahead of a lot of the rest of the world. And by 1860, we got, you know, from the medical knowledge of those times, a reasonable idea of what people were dying from, insofar as the doctors in those days knew about it, understood the disease. And at 1860 death rates, um, there's 30% of the kids that were born would be, has somebody got a laser pointer that doesn't fade? And does anybody carry a laser pointer in their pocket? We can still see um, it, Richard, I can give you a... Sorry? Point it at the screen, we can still see it. Yeah? Yeah. 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 See it fades, though. Oh, I see. Shake it. It's all right. Just move it up. Okay, bring it down, Nico. That's great. Um, so you've got 
supposed to be in memory of Richard Dodd in Adelaide's points in those days. So you've got 30%, but in ancient cities, 30% of the kids will be dead in the first few years of life. And then you've got high death rates through the formula age. So in young adults, you've got high death rates. And so you know, you've got about, 40, by age 40, half the population, by age half the population dead. Only about 20% are making it to age 70, and virtually nobody made it to age 90, not even Queen Victoria. And as we go from 1860 to 1910, so I'm going to go forward, 1860, 1910, 1960, 2010, and when we go to 1910, then it's not so different. It's a bit better. You have 20% dead instead of 30% <coughs> dead in early childhood. There you go. So there's... 1910, 1860, 1910, <laughs> 1860. So we come forward 50 years and we're better off. And reasons for that, I mean, it was, you know, these were definite changes done on purpose. The supply of sewage, the supply of clean water, you no know, efforts to get disease un- under control. But still, you only got a 30% surviving to age 70 and very few surviving to age 90. The big change comes between 1910 and 1960, actually 1910, about 1950, because the childhood mortality virtually vanishes. You've only got a few percent dying in childhood, so by 1960, there's the childhood mortality gone. It's an extraordinary change. And actually, that had happened mostly by 1950. And in fact, if you look at when it happened, it happened steadily between about 1900 and 1950. Um, And it, it really wasn't down very much to medication because we didn't have drugs that worked. Sulfonamides weren't invented until the, 1930, until the 1930s, penicillin until the 1940s. And, but most of the change had happened by then. And it, it was due to you know, vaccination, some improvements in nutrition, just you know, general public health measures. And unfortunately, the fact that this happened because of general public health measures rather than because of medication. Actually, vaccination did, did play a big part as well. I mean, vaccination was a, was a deliberate effort to control infectious diseases that worked, was widely used and worked. But when people are talking about global health now, they often say, oh, well, in the West, it was you know, social improvements that got rid of all these diseases. It wasn't medicine at all. And they therefore say, well, therefore, we shouldn't be concentrating on sort of medicines for Africa and you know, treatment of malaria. We should be concentrating on public health, healthcare facilities for everybody, you know, social progress for everybody, clean water for everybody. Well, these are fine. You know, these, are, these are fine things. But the question is, what could we do about the millions of child deaths in Africa by use of modern vaccines and modern medicine? And it's irrelevant to say what happened at a time when modern medicines didn't exist. It's just, it's, an, it's obviously loopy. And yet it's given, it's stated as though this is wisdom. You see people saying, well, you know, it's just... You know, the West improved without, without medical change, it was social change, so let's have to go for social change in Africa and not bother with supplying medicine. No. I mean, you know, once you point out how stupid the argument is, that this is not a way to evaluate the power of modern, modern medicines, obviously the argument collapses, but it really still has influence in policy. I'm not arguing against social improvement, I'm not arguing against health services, I'm arguing for affordable availability of medicines and use. Okay, now... When we go, obviously, child survival can't improve very much more after 1960. So when we go forward to 2010, it can't go up, so it's got to go sideways. <coughs> and this is what Richard Gold and his generation of epidemiologists were really substantial contributors to. Yes, it's medicines as well, but an enormous contribution is the avoidance of death from smoking. So when we go now from 1960 to the present, of course, childhood mortality has now almost entirely disappeared, and I'm very glad it has because my one-month-old grandson is now in hospital, being treated effectively for you know, the sort of rapid breathing illness that could have killed kids a hundred years ago, and he'll be out in a couple of days' time, feeling perfectly good and so will we. But it's this 
jump forwards here, and I've given it for males rather than females because back in 1960, we had the worst epidemic of the world. British males had the worst death rates in the world from tobacco. We had the world's worst tobacco death rates. And since 1960, we've had the world's best decrease in tobacco death rates, but it's easy to have the world's best decrease if you start with the world's worst death rates. <laughs> And so, and the females hadn't got there then, and so that's why I've been stressing the male rates because it shows the, the contribution of the t- control of tobacco. Let's put all these together now. There we go. 1860, 1910. It's it's a, I don't know, it's just an interesting sequence. I think if you go back, say from about 1850 to 2050, if you take a 200 year period from 1850 to 2050, I think this is, this is the period, this 200 year period is going to be the period in which humanity controls premature death, at least from disease. I don't know what premature death from nuclear war or you know, various other catastrophes is going to be, but we could have, we could have some catastrophic pandemic, you know, 21st century equivalent of black death. I mean, I don't feel at all sure that these sort of things aren't going to happen. But if we keep on the way we are, there are some things that are getting worse in some particular parts of the world, but overall things are getting better. Child mortality is going down, adult mortality is going down, with a number of horrible exceptions. You know, HIV in Southern Africa, <coughs> war in Eastern Congo, tobacco in China, obesity in America. But there's, there's, a, you know, there's a very few things which are actually getting substantially worse in any population, cigarettes in China. But it, other than those five, things are getting better. Uh, take it out. There's the 20th century, and there's the control, or partial control, of the chronic diseases of middle age. And you can see now, instead of having 20%, Survival rate, so you've got 80% survival rate, so of course, among the non smokers, it's even better. And I'll illustrate the reasons for this with this picture. This looks like a load of cigarettes, and it isn't. Um, it's the, each one is the probability of death in middle age, and it's the British males. Again, in, at 1960 death rates, you'd have 42% dead in middle age, and 19 of those 42 deaths would have been from tobacco. Actually, if you went to 1965, it would be about 20 out of the 42 deaths would be from tobacco. So this is just before the peak and just after. But then, in 1970, we start to take tobacco control seriously, and then we have a huge increase, we have a huge decrease in the, in the prevalence of smoking. And the deaths from tobacco have come down enormously, 1915, 11, 6, 4. Overall mortality is going down, 41, 31, 34, 19. And what's the chief contributor to it? It's the decrease in tobacco deaths. Now, the decrease in tobacco deaths isn't just people stopping smoking. It's also doctors getting better at treating the heart attacks caused by smoking. So it's a little bit of a cheat. But it's not entirely a cheat. And it, it, it's really worth bearing this in mind that the main thing that drives social inequality in Britain today is differences in tobacco deaths. The poor have much higher death rates from tobacco than the rich. The main thing that's driving the difference between past and present is the decrease in tobacco deaths in this country. And the main thing that was driving the difference in mortality between male and female was the difference in tobacco deaths. The men were smoking and killing themselves. The women on the whole had more sense. And so here's the corresponding picture for women. And the maximum they ever got to was about 5% of women being killed by tobacco back in the 1980s, and now it's down to 3%. And so we've got, we're down to about 3% of the women, 4% of the men being killed by tobacco in the middle age. So it's still nearly a quarter of all deaths in middle age. It's still the biggest single cause of death we've got. And the good news is that it used to be worse. You know, it used to be five times as bad in men, it used to be worse in women. And it, this, this female epidemic, if they hadn't stopped smoking, if they just kept on smoking the way they were in the 1960s, 70s, that would have gone right on up to here. So it's well, it's well down below half of what it would have been if women had kept on smoking. So in men, it's well down below half of what it was. In women, it's well below half of what it would have been. And so now, we've only got about three or four years difference in life expectancy between male and female. Here's males and females now. It's less than four years difference in life expectancy. So we've got this improvement, and this improvement is continuing, and it will continue some more. 
but we've got very little change in the probability of reaching 100. It's still only a few percent. And if you reach 100, it doesn't matter anyway, because 50% of those who reach 100 will be dead by the time they're 101, and 50% of them will be dead by the time they're 102. And it's, you've got about 50% per year death rate then. And so only one in a thousand of those who reach 100 will reach 110. So this idea that we're going to get lifespan drifting off to 140, 150, you know, it, I think this is just nonsense. I don't think that's what's happening. We're not making any material difference to the probability of death before 100. It was 99.9%, now it's 98%. Well, I mean, they're, they're not different. But we are making a difference to when deaths happen. Okay, now what about the rest of the world? I've taken Britain partly because it's a dog centenary, partly because it's quite interesting from the point of view of tobacco, chronic disease control. What about the rest of the world? Well, in terms of childhood mortality, the rest of the world did in the second half of the 20th century what we did in the first half of the 20th century. So if we take worldwide child mortality, what's the prophecy that kids are going to be dead before they're five? It would have been a quarter of the kids born in the middle of the century. By the 1970s, it was 14%. By the 1990s, it was 9%. Then, by the early years, the present century, it was 7%, and now it's about 6%. Now, that's still a lot of child deaths. You know, 7% of 130 million newborn kids is 10 million deaths. So this is 10 million deaths. And, you know, but if the world, if they still got, if the world still had the death rates of the mid-century, it would be 30 million if the world had the death rates of Western Europe, of the most prosperous countries in the world, at the beginning of the 20th century, at 1900 death rates, then there'd be 30 million deaths in a quarter of us would die. So if they had West European death rates of 1900, it'd be 30 million deaths. If they had West European death rates of the year 2000, it would be 1 million deaths. So, you know, 10 million is good, it's lower than 30 million, but 10 million is still bad because it's higher than 1 million. And a lot of these deaths are avoidable. Okay, what about these death stages in order to Well, this is for the deaths in the early years of this century. And even there, there have been changes between now and then. So these would be the deaths of around about the year 2001. That was from the Global Burden of Disease Estimates, for, which were you know, done and published about 2006. There's a new lot of Global Disease Estimates going to be presented to the Royal Society on December the 14th, there's going to be an all-day session, and then on December the 15th, the Lancet's going to run eight papers, all in the same issue as the Lancet, putting out the new estimates. And there are some quite <coughs> striking changes. Anyway, if we go back ten years, then about two or three million deaths are just deaths in the process of being born, and also we're killing about half a million mothers. Um, about 0.4 million mothers, about 2,000. And then about 2 million deaths from acute respiratory infection, about 2 million deaths from varial disease, about a million deaths from malaria, about a million deaths from vaccine preventable diseases, not very many deaths from HIV, because HIV mainly is causing deaths at ages older than this. This is just looking at the deaths at ages 0 to 4. And some people would argue that you should also include the late stillbirths, kids that are perfectly normal, healthy, they're kids that are wanted, they're inside the mother, and they die in the process of being born, but not quite far enough out to count as a live birth. So, I mean, that would be five million if you counted the stillbirths and the perinatal deaths. There's a lot. So, it, it's obviously, in terms of avoiding deaths, that's numerically the most important. Because these other deaths are after the kid has come out and really bonded with the world. So, in a way, they're more important. I don't know quite how to rate the importance of these things. I suppose I like counting just because at least we can agree on what the numbers are. But these are very, these are mostly pneumonia, they're mostly treatable pneumonias. They could be cured by cheap antibiotics. The diarrhea could mostly, be, the life could be saved by oral rehydration therapy, just by actually getting salty, slightly salty, sugary water into the kids' intestines, because the kids with diarrhea, most of them are actually dying from dehydration. Your body just has this enormous reaction to try and get the infection out. And in the process, the body loses so much liquid that the kid dies of dehydration. And you can't give them water to drink to make up for it. It's no use giving them something like this. Because their guts can't absorb it. Their guts are in shock. And so they've got... The if, but if you put a little bit of sugar and salt in it, then even the shocked gut cells can absorb it and actually avoid the kid dying. 
doesn't matter if the water's clean or not, by the time that lap time, the kids already got diarrhea, they'll get something in them with carbohydrate and salt, and then they'll be able to absorb it. Okay, so these are these one, a million malaria deaths, every one of them is, would have been avoidable by treatment. Every case of malaria is curable while the kids while the kids ill by cheap drugs that take a few days, cost about a dollar for the complete course of treatment, and just take a few days to give but don't get given in time. And you can fight mosquitoes being there, and you can, you know, there's, there's various things you can do to reduce the incidence of malaria and to reduce the case fatality rate. 0.6 million deaths from measles. There was a huge people thought this is ridiculous. We've got something like 600,000 deaths a year from measles. Well, it's partly because the kids are malnourished. But we've got a vaccine that works if it's given. And so there's been a great measles vaccination campaign over the last decade. And the, the result is that this number is probably below 0.2 million now within the decade. They just took what worked and made sure it got given. And I think, I think that's just, you know, it, again, it's, it, it's, one shouldn't wait for millennial improvements before making sure that the things that, are really, that really work against the big killers actually get given. Millennial social improvements may help, but if you wait for them, then you'll be lo- you know, there'll be all sorts of unnecessary deaths. Okay, let's go to the next age group. When we start going to ages 5 to 34, then you start seeing large numbers of deaths from HIV, off the order of 2 million deaths a year from HIV, and the exact number isn't known, off the order of 5 million deaths a year from other causes. And a lot of these other causes are external causes, accident, violence, suicide, war. And these are important causes of death, and they can be influenced. There's a lot of variation in the probability that a young adult is going to commit suicide. It varies greatly from time to over decades in particular countries. Look, there's loads of empty seats down here. Come down and sit in some of these empty seats. Come walk across the stage and get into them. That's fine. Let's let's see someone here. So we've got about 17 million deaths before the age of 35, or about 20 million if we include those stillbirths, the late stillbirths. Um, and I'd like to illustrate, we, you see, we don't have reliable statistics from Africa, um, which is where the epidemic has been worst, but we've got reliable statistics from the United States, and I, I just want to show you just a snapshot of what was death from disease in the United States um, in young men, well, young women as well, in their early 30s. So I'll just take men and women in their early 30s, 30 to 34, and I'll show you the pattern of mortality in the United States over the last 60 years. So here's 1950, 1970, 1990, 2010. I'll show another graph like this. Um, and here's the decrease in death from infection as we get just past the end of the time and antibiotics are coming in, anti-TB drugs... And it's decreasing very nicely. This doesn't include death from external causes, it's just death from disease. And then the decrease stalls as the HIV epidemic bites, and then goes up and up and up and up. This is all death from all disease. And then you get protease inhibitors, combination therapy, and it works. It gets the infections don't stop happening. Americans are still getting infected with HIV at about the same rate. And yet the death rate has just dropped precipitously. Um, and has stayed down. So that's within two years, it's most extraordinary change. And on a lesser scale in the women, because the epidemic wasn't as big in women as in men. But, and if you could see statistics like that from Africa, it would be out of the roof. You know, the death rates there, especially at the time when there weren't any effective treatments available, were just ridiculous. Now I want to just, I want to concentrate from now on on middle age. So I want now to just come back and just talk about 35 to 69. Um, but before I do, I just want to stand back at what I've seen. Uh, if we take deaths in the early 2000s, taking the world as a whole, 60 million people per year are dying nowadays, roughly 60 million a year. That's about 20 million in middle age, mostly from chronic disease in middle age, 20 million before middle age, 
varicosum from cancer or heart disease, and then potentially in old age. And I put that in brackets because, as I said before, you know, when you reach old age, you to die old age. And that's what we're trying to do is to actually get people down in old age, get them to old age first. So we've got about 20 million, 20 million, 20 million. And of course, these deaths, these deaths in early childhood are much easier to influence than deaths in middle age. And you know what it's like in this country really trying to affect deaths in middle age. And so it looks as though, well, really, death in middle age is unimportant in comparison with dealing with the deaths before middle age. And, you know, it's a reasonable view. I mean, certainly we need a lot more relative emphasis on the deaths before middle age. But there's a lot of big sort of soft targets in here that you could, that, where we could avoid really substantial numbers of deaths this century. And middle age is a somewhat greater relative importance than this slide suggests, because in a way it's not fair, this slide. Here we're looking at, well, if you're talking about deaths in middle age in the year 2000, well, these would have been born around about 1940 or something like that. Well, of course, there's far fewer people around who were born around about 1940 than people who were born in the year 2000. So we've got a much bigger denominator here. So what would happen if we, say, if we put it the other way around and we say, well, of the 130 million who are born every year now, when are they going to die? So this spin says, if we take 130, forget about the 60 million deaths a year, what about 130 million births a year? What's going to happen to them? Well, about 20 million of them will die before middle age. And if you take the births in 2001, then all the deaths in the first 10 years of life already happened. So of the people born around the year 2000, then we'll have about 20 million dead before middle age. But then there'll be much larger numbers reaching middle age. And if we have the present death rate, then we'll have about 40 million deaths in middle age. And then that means 70 million of them will survive on into old age. And I, I think it's worth bearing in mind both these sets of numbers, 2020-20 and 2040-70, or if we ignore the deaths in old age, 20 million deaths before middle age, and it's going to be 40 million deaths in middle age at the death rates, if the current death rates persist. So if we want to halve premature death, I'd like to say, can we halve... The, the death rates, can we halve the death rates that we now experience? Can we halve the death rates in middle age? And I think the answer is yes, by taking the big causes seriously. Yes, we can. We've done it before. We've halved, you've seen, we halved the death rates in middle age over the last 40 or 50 years in Britain. And I think it can be done worldwide. And also, I think we can halve the remaining death rates in Britain by taking the big causes seriously. As I said, there's only... There's only five causes that are actually getting worse anywhere. HIV, for example, South Africa. Tobacco, for example, China. Alcohol, for example, Russia. Obesity, for example, America. War, for example, Congo. And if you just take the last 20 years, since 1990, these are the only five causes which have got a lot worse anywhere. And there's some places where war has decreased as a cause of premature death. There's places where alcohol has decreased there's places where Britain is the best example, where tobacco has decreased. And actually, there are places where even the HIV death rate has decreased, and also a lot of infections are being avoided. <coughs> the, these are things that we can do things about. But other than that, overall death rates are going down to an extraordinary extent. And it's odd, because you, you know, somehow people think we've got so many new hazards all the time, that you know, there's one thing after another after another, all these new hazards being discovered, what was stress and I don't know, hormones and pollutants and everything else. It seems like it's a sort of lucky man that gets out of this world alive. I want to just deal briefly with alcohol. Um, in countries like the UK, US, China, sure, a lot of people die from drink. Sure, there's a lot of fights caused by drink. Um, and a lot of family horribleness is caused by drink, and also a lot of pleasure caused by drink. But if we just talk about deaths, then in general, in most countries of the world, when you, certainly when you get to middle age, you don't have more deaths from drink than from smoking. Russia is really different, and it's, it's quite extraordinarily different. This is a graph of Russian mortality, and this is, in a sense, look at the right-hand axis, which gives you the probability 
that a man is going to die before the age of 55. Now, here's Britain, back in 1980 death rates, it was about 10%, 10% of men had died, now it's about 7% of men would die before 55. And if only we didn't drink or smoke, well, that would be 4%. So it's 7% it ought to be 4%. Well, I mean, 2005 death rates in Russia, it was 37%. And that difference is predominantly death from vodka. It's death from, you know, if you look at the diseases, there's various diseases caused by drink, you know, a little failure, pancreatitis, you know, pneumonia, tuberculosis, <coughs> and some weird Russian form of heart disease. And overall, the probability of death from disease gets doubled. I mean, if you take someone who gets to a bottle of vodka a day, then the death rate from disease is approximately doubled. But the death rate from traffic accidents is quadrupled if you, among those who drink a bottle of vodka a day. And the death rate from other accidents is six times as big. And when I say six times as big, I don't mean six times as big as non-drinkers, because you can't find the non-drinkers there. I mean, six times as big as in the control group, which is those who drink less than a bottle of vodka a week. You get death from suicide is eight times as big in the, drink, in the drinkers, and death from being murdered is ten times as big. And that's for men. And for women, it's even worse. There's not so many women drink a lot, but I mean, a woman who drinks a bottle of vodka a day is actually 15 times as likely to commit suicide as a woman who doesn't drink. And she's 20 times as likely to be murdered. Because I would do that. Um, I didn't touch it. Sorry? Well, it would if someone could see the cursor. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be the cursor in a minute. Where <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, is that little arrow thing? Where is the cursor? It disappeared. Um, does this computer actually have? Even, you know, have enough spirit in them to 
to keep on drinking. <laughs> and the one thing they did was drink. I mean, food, the price of food went up, the price of vodka went down. And you got this tidal wave of death from suicide, murder, accidents, and the diseases caused by drink. And then in the mid 1980s, yeah, if you can get that one there, okay. Stabilised, it went down to 7% inflation instead of 2,500% inflation. And then you got the ruble crisis struck, and you know, the, the value of the ruble decreased by a third. You know, and the industries didn't have any way of trading with each other. You know, they were trading something like 1,000 horses to 20 tractors or something. It was just, you know, it, it, industry was working by barter. And it was just, it was completely despairing. And since then, the debt rates have kept on coming down. By 2010, they're down to here. That's still 25% debt in Asia, so about 5% debt, but it's an improvement. Um, anyway, this came out, and Gorbachev, for, for obvious reasons, went on nationwide TV and said, well, this is very important, you know, that he went on 29th of June, so this is very important. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? He's the only hero. And then, but the next day, Medvedev went on nationwide TV, because they'd actually got anti-alcohol prep plans in the pipeline anyway, and then this came out in the media, and so they were, you know, they were sort of pushed into doing what they were actually going to do anyway, they were already planning to try and do something about alcohol, and so it went, said, I've ordered the health minister to draw up an anti-alcohol strategy, and I thought, well, we'll see what happens, but a year later they came up with something quite serious, you know, really quite strong warnings, restrictions on sales after 10 o'clock at night, so you can't get drunk and then buy another bottle of vodka and just keep drinking all night, um, and a tripling of price, and We'll see. We'll just see. The death rates are falling. And Putin kept notably silent. I mean, you know, Trotsky was warning before the First World War that if you, about, you know, how bad alcohol was to the Russian people, and then during the First World War, to try and keep the soldiers fighting, the Tsar started limiting alcohol availability. You know, they were just trying to actually, because, you know, society was just drunk. It's a long, long history. And a lot of people argued that actually these restrictions on alcohol, this was absolutely the last straw, and this was one of the things that precipitated the Russian Revolution. And actually, it looks as it's also one of the things that precipitated the end of the Russian Revolution. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very odd to know what to do, and it's very odd to know what will happen. But, so Putin was quite mindful that previous efforts to control alcohol had led to disaster on the part of the government that had tried to do it. And so he kept very quiet in all this. But actually, it turned out to be quite popular. And people thought, well, you know, Medvedev's right. And, you know, people actually are supporting it. And so Putin, when, they, when he saw there was support for it, then started saying, well, you know, we should actually, we don't want a country, that the country has so many premature deaths. We need to take not only alcohol, but also tobacco seriously. What if they will do that? And there's... I can make a perfectly lovely down here, a mortality rate down here, if they will take vodka and and tobacco seriously. So the, actually we got the best coverage we got for this story was not in the Russian newspapers, but in fact we got something like five hundred million viewers in China. They they ran they gave us four minutes on the Chinese national news on Friday night at seven PM. It's the top spot on the Chinese news. And so that we got five hundred million viewers. Well why is CCTV, why are they interested in you know, public health problems in Russia? Well, they're not. They just want to illustrate their population. What happens if communism collapses? That's <laughs> <laughs> why they showed it. Anyway, I gave you all these numbers. They're all true. And yeah, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. It'd be, it'd be so nice if it does work. You see these guys sitting around fishing through homes in the ice and if this was Britain, that would be a free bottle, but it's not, it's a vodka bottle. It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's just really large quantities get drunk. Okay, right, I'm going to stay, I spent longer on Russia than I meant to, so I'm going to do the rest of the world faster. Um, so, evidence for substantial avoidability is every major cause of premature death. By cause, you could talk about alcohol being a cause of death, or you could talk about lung cancer being a cause of death. So, unfortunately, the words are the same, but Either way, this is true. Um, so, 
we'd already discovered several major causes, smoking, alcohol, you know, various pathogens. So others will be. I don't see why we shouldn't find other really major causes. For example, what on earth underlies the observation that HDL cholesterol seems to be protective? We don't know. But there's something really still to be discovered about protection against occlusive stroke and occlusive heart disease. Every disease that's common in one place is much less common elsewhere. You find a country with a lot of lung cancer, you find some other country where there isn't a lot of lung cancer. And you can look within countries and see great variation. These differences are not chiefly genetic. Um, the differences, the genetic differences, are well, you need several weird genetic differences. The differences between populations aren't mainly genetic. And you can illustrate this by the fact that if people go from one population to another, if, you know, Japanese go and live like Americans in America, then they'll die like Americans in America, get the same pattern of diseases as Americans in America. Same with blacks going from West Africa to America, they got taken, but still they live more like whites in America than they do like blacks in West Africa, and they finish up with patterns of diseases like the whites in America. So these differences change as people migrate if they go and live like the host country. And within countries you get variation. I'll show you that in China. This is an ex- this was in, in the early 1970s. They got the death rates from all of the major diseases in every county of China. The counties are doing things like this. And red is high rates. Yellow is low rates. But red, you know, here, this is, and this is the example of the esophagus cancer, but it could be any other major disease. Um, and here, about 20% of the men and a smaller number of the women, but still a lot of the women, are dying from esophagus cancer. It's not mainly due to, down to smoking and drinking. So if you go 200 miles south of Beijing, you get 20% of the men dying from esophagus cancer. But if instead you'd gone 200 miles west, then it would be 1%. Here's the end of the Yangtze River. If you stop at the end of the Yangtze River, then the last county on the left is called Qidong. 10% of the men and a few percent of the women will die from liver disease, liver cirrhosis, liver cancer. If you stopped 200 miles that river, it would have been less than 1%. Cancer of native fans is common here, and it's rare here. Cancer of the lung is common in places up in the northeast and not down here. But, you know, there's, 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 every, every disease there's avoidability. If you take a stroke, then you find areas, counties around here, where 20% will die from stroke before they're 70. And of course, there's lots of horrible damage as well. You get a stroke that really cripples them, but doesn't kill them. And down here, it'd be you know, 1 2 percent. So every disease that's common somewhere is rare somewhere else. So where it's common, it doesn't have to be common. And in fact, if you stop here, at this point here, Jackson Province, then you can find counties where 7 percent of the women will commit suicide before the age of 70. Go somewhere over here, and it'll be down to below 1 percent. Even suicide doesn't have to be common. So, you know, everywhere you've got evidence for avoidability. So, again, this, this, this comes back. So, every disease you've got avoidability. So, what are we going to do about these 40 million deaths? Well, at current death rates, 15 million of them will be vascular disease, heart attacks, strokes, 10 million will be cancer. So, what can we do about vascular disease and cancer? If we're going to halve that number, if we're going to halve premature death, if we get this down to 20 million instead of 40 million, then we've got to do something about vascular death rates and cancer death rates. Can current vascular and cancer death rates in middle age be halved? And that's the question I want to address, and the answer is yes. But take the big things seriously. Vascular mortality, heart attacks, strokes. Secondary prevention is when you have a heart attack or stroke and you don't want another one, you've still got a reasonable quality of life. You have high risk you'll have another one if you don't do something about it. Well, if you take statins, aspirin, simple blood pressure lowering things that are out of patent, you can reduce your risk of having another heart attack or stroke over the next 10 years by two-thirds. These things are all cheap and out of patent, and they, they work in rich countries, and they could work in middle-income countries. These things work, but we don't know how. We haven't got logistics right for getting the people who've had the heart attacks and strokes to actually take one pill a day. Well, first of all, we should get into one pill a day instead of three separate pills, and it should be generic. Um, but you know, vascular surgery also, I mean, this, I mean, a lot of people can be protected against heart disease, against stroke by appropriate vascular surgery. So, secondary prevention is much more important that it, it gets undervalued. You know, of course, it'd be better if you didn't have a heart attack or stroke in the first place, but people who've had a heart attack or stroke, they're quite motivated not to have another one. 
They don't like it if they know they're at high risk. And if you can take them down to a third of what their risk would be, then the absolute gain is quite big. Whereas if you start trying to mitigate the whole general population, the absolute gain isn't nearly as big. So that ought to be doable. Hey, so you'll make that happen in Mexico. Um, then in the UK, we've got huge mortality decreases in vascular disease. Um, look, and these are due, look, this is stroke. Look at this. 1950, 1970, 1990, 2010, 2010 is down here. And so it used to be that 5% would be killed by stroke in middle age. Now it's less than 1%. But still, the stroke rates are much higher in the poor than in the rich. But, you know, and up until here, we didn't have any medicines that worked. We didn't have any, you know, we, did, we didn't have anything that would reduce stroke rates, and yet they went down. And now we do, instead of being held down by medication, perhaps not a lot, so you see stuff bending down, which is the, the effect of widespread use of medications that work. And if we take, okay, stroke was about 5% dying, so you've got 5% dying from stroke back in the 1950s, but the overall risk, at 90, the death rates in 1970, the probability of dying from heart attack or stroke, or any sort of vascular disease, was 25%. So there you are, there's men up there, and it was about 25% dead at 1970 death rates. And since 1970, look at it. You know, we're now down here, we're now down to about 5%. If we take the last, we've got data from 2010 now. And so we've gone down from 25% men down around to 5%. And that's partly we've got medicines that work, and it's partly because so many men have stopped smoking. Now, on females, you didn't get you know, it was being pushed up among men by the increasing effects of smoking, which distorted the shape of men. what the shape should be <coughs> going down anyway, and then being helped on down by the advent of modern medicines. But you know, can we have primitive? Yeah, look at it. Maybe difficult not to if we could actually get things. But things like that aren't happening everywhere. So, more evidence of the avoidability is these big time trends that you see in various periods. Things don't have to happen. What are the avoidable periods? I'm going to show one side on each of these, one on tobacco, blood pressure, blood pressure, obesity, so each one contains decades of work. Larry Brown's Million Women study is the first Irish respected study of women who smoke throughout adult life. And even though we've now got low tar cigarettes, mild cigarettes, light cigarettes, more than half of the women who smoke them will be killed by them. Actually, the death rate among women who smoke nowadays is three times the death rate of women who don't smoke, and most of that is caused by smoking. So two-thirds of women who smoke and die in middle age wouldn't have died in middle age if they'd had non-smoker death rates. Anyway, I'll just do vascular disease first off. There's heart disease, there's stroke. One is the non-smoker rates. Smoke five or ten a day. You're three times as likely to have a heart attack. And if you really want to go big and smoke ten five a day, then you have six times the risk of a heart attack. Look at it. And this is causal. And here, you're doubling, tripling, you know, double the risk of stroke if you're a light smoker, and quadruple the risk of smoke if you're a stroke if you're heavy smoker. But if you're a light smoker, you can say if I smoke a few cigarettes, is that okay? If you smoke a few cigarettes a day, it's probably the most dangerous thing you do. Okay, one on blood pressure now. Again, put together evidence on a million adults, spend something like 10 years analysing it. And what's the final conclusion? Well, every 20 millimetres of mercury change in systolic blood pressure halves vascular mortality in middle age. When you get blood pressure measurement, something like 140 over 90, then the big one is the systolic. And, you know, it could be 120, 140, 160, 180. Well, every one of those steps of 20 means a twofold difference in vascular risk. And here's the results of heart disease and the results of stroke are even steeper. So here's where you get 34,000 deaths in a million people. There's the relationship among people in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s, in their 70s. And you can see here we have 120, 180. This is doubling scale up here. And so, look, Every 20 millimetres difference makes a two-fold difference there. And you, know, you can get, well, being substantially overweight will produce a 10 millimetre difference. And drugs can produce 10 millimetres easily and with more difficulty, 20 millimetres difference. So these are modifiable risk factors. The main thing is don't be too old. I mean, you're much better young like you got than you are old like me. Okay, what about blood lipids? Well, we've got magic drugs now for LDL cholesterol. We take statins. You take one pill a day, 
and he finished up with a sort of British cholesterol, finishes up like the cholesterol of a Chinese peasant. And you, know, you can actually knock 40% off your risk of having a heart attack. And because it's actually preventing damage to the carotid arteries, you can substantially reduce your risk of having a stroke caused by damage to the carotid arteries. And also you reduce the risk of you know, horrible degenerative disease of the arteries of the legs. So just um, the good statin, oh, sorry, good statin regimen is now out of patent. Single statin is a good drug, it's out of patent. They taught us statins is an even better drug, it's just come off patent. So, you know, these things, we ought to be using these things, and we ought to be, at least in people of high risk. And it was all these crazy things, right? You know, how lowering cholesterol was going to make people commit suicide, make them more violent, and to cause cancer. Well, we've now got about 200,000 people randomised in various trials of statin versus nothing, or statin versus each other. The relative risk <coughs> for cancer is 1.00. It was all rubbish. It was all selective reporting of particular little bits of the evidence. And then, you know, making them more newsworthy. And these stories of acting a cholesterol lowering causing suicide and depression, it's, it's all untrue when you get serious evidence. It, it's, you know, LDL our LDL cholesterol levels aren't normal. They're not, they're not what humans are evolved to live with. Body mass index. Okay, well, I've got a BMI of something like 24, and if I had a BMI of 30, then I'd be called obese. So if you go from 24 up to 32, that's an increase of one-third in your body mass. And around 22, 24 is minimum mortality in this country. If you've got 10 units, then you finish up approximately doubling your risk of heart attack and stroke. So there's body mass index. So this is on here, and, and this is called obesity. Anywhere, th- anywhere 30 plus is called, a, a 30, 25 to 30 is called overweight. Anything 30 plus is called obesity, and anything 40 plus is called morbid obesity. And if you. Um, and those yellow lines, that's, they illustrate the relationship of 10 units of BMI <coughs> having a minus stroke. You see, these things, vascular mortality is avoidable, it's beautifully avoidable. Okay, having cancer mortality, prevention, screening, and treatment. Now, I'm going to go through this fast because I've overrun on time. So, certainly, there are things that matter in cancer mortality. Breast cancer treatment matters. If I have cancer, I would go to a doctor. I wouldn't go to an epidemiologist. But the main things that have actually driven cancer trends in cancer mortality in this country have been epidemiological changes rather than improvements in treatment. The big exception is breast cancer. So here's breast cancer rates, right? so they're going up and then <coughs> breast cancer and now they're down to half of where they would have been. So breast cancer, yes. And they were going up for epidemiology. So we've got lots of causes of cancer, and I'm not going to have time to review them, but chronic infection with hepatitis B virus, human papillomavirus, helicobacter pylori, these cause liver cancer, cervix cancer, stomach cancer, dietary practices, particularly being overweight, can call increased risk to various types of cancer, although it's responsible for only about 6% of all the cancer deaths in Britain. Alcohol can cause cancer of the mouth and throat, but particularly above all else in this country, tobacco. If I jump forwards, I'll jump forward a few slides. So overall UK cancer mortality trends. Look, here's, these are the big four for men. There's intestinal cancer, and look, since 1990, we're better at treating it. Good. We're avoiding a quarter of the deaths of treatment. Good. And here's stomach cancer, but we haven't improved our treatment. It's gone down from 70 down to 10. It's gone down to one-seventh of what it was, and we don't know why. Prostate roughly constant, but the dominant thing is done. Now, non-smokers have lung cancer rates of 7 on this scale, so they'd be down, and non-smokers would be down here and constant. And that's what Britain should be. This is what was added to our death rates by smoking. So the main cause of the trends in the recent decades, lung, cigarettes, colorectal treatment improvements since 1990, stomach unknown. What about women? You go on a different scale for women, because of course they did. So I'm going to the top of the scale here, possibly include the lung cancer, whereas the top of the scale for women is only here, 75. So there at the top is breast cancer, improvements in treatments. Lung, cigarettes going up, going down a bit, and now leveled off, unfortunately. 
colorectal was going down anyway for reasons we don't know, and then treatment helped to find out. And then uterus is actually screening. Cancer of the cervix was going to go up like that as a, in response to changes in sexual behaviour in the 1960s, 1970s, increase in spread of human papillomavirus. And in, fortunately, the screening programme came in just in time to prevent that and to change that into this. So we now have about 1,000 deaths a year from cervix cancer. We would have about five or 6,000 a year were it not for the screening programme. And again, stomach unexplained. But it's, yeah, I'm not interested, actually. I think it's extraordinary. I don't know what use it is knowing this, but it just... <laughs> it's just beautiful. Um, OK, so what about total cancer mortality? Well, here's cancer mortality in the under-35s. It was 0.4% dying, and now it's 0.2% dying, and the main reason for that is better drugs. You know, treatment, childhood, leukemia, Hodgkin's disease, testicular cancer, good, you know, so you half the risk. Now, there's death in middle age among women and among men. So we did have 14% of the men die from cancer, and of those 14 deaths, eight were smoking and six were not. It was more than half more the deaths. If you take that male and female cancer death rates, I would take them and split them into the part caused by smoking and the part not. And the scale is going to change. Now I'm going to have 8% at the top of the scale. There. On the left, males. Now look, that is what male cancer mortality in Britain should have been like over the last few decades of people who never smoked. And this is what was added to it by smoking. This is what was added by smoking. And here among females is what cancer mortality should be like, seeing us decrease in breast cancer mortality. And this is what was added to it by smoking. If the women had kept on smoking, there would have been something like that added to it by smoking. It's still a quarter of all the cancer deaths in this country. It's still a quarter of all the cancer deaths in the European Union. It's a third of all the cancer deaths in the United States in middle age. But it used to be worse. It's extraordinary how that one thing dominates. You see, this, this is obviously this is Richard Gold's 100th birthday, so I'm, I'm going to stress this, but it's true. And these decreases are going to continue because these decreases are dominated by high cancer death rates in later middle age, in my age. If you look in early middle age, the trends are even more favourable. And of course, those trends in early middle age, 20 years later, are going to move to late middle age. So the trends in early middle age suggest future decreases later on. So look, this is lung cancer in very young people. <coughs> and it's 18, and it's down to 3 in men. And women, and for the last 10 years, it's been remaining constant at about 3. But look at that decrease, and that's not changes in air pollution. And you know it's not changes in air pollution because we've got a control group 20 miles away across the channel. See? That's what's happened in Britain after 1997, as we just saw. Um, and then this is what's happened at the same time in France. They've got the same air pollution. They've, what happened was we were smoking maximally. We've got maximal cancer rates. We were smoking a lot during the Second World War. For obvious reasons, they weren't. So we're lucky about it. And so and French women didn't really start smoking until the 60s or 70s. And so there it starts. So, it's a, it's a, you know, this is a political disease. It's a political disease. And there's Valerie Browse in the Indian Women's Study for all causes of cancer. You know, smoke five or ten cigarettes a day, double your risk of death in middle age. But the good news in her study was how extremely effective stopping was. So this is ex-smoker rates. Now, this is the 1.0 is the never-smoker risk. Three is the current smoker's risk. And if you stop at age 30, you, you get 1.05. You've got a 5% increase in death rate for the rest of your life. But it's better than having a 200% increase. If you stop at 40, you have a 20% higher death rate for the rest of your life. But it's better than having a 200% higher death rate. So if you're smoking, it's really worth stopping. But it's better not to start. And so the obvious thing was stop at 4.30, preferably well before 4.30. Stop at 4.40, preferably well before 40. And I think that's the right phrase. But these, I don't know, this is um, so smoking kills, stopping works. And that's the end of the good news, and here's the bad news. That's China. China is now producing 40% of the world's cigarettes. And they've been smoked almost entirely by Chinese men, the women have got more sense. Since 1949, there's this huge increase in the 70s and 80s. This is going to produce a huge increase in death from tobacco as the young adults of the 70s, 80s, 90s, <coughs> later middle age and old age, around you know, 2030, 2050, they've got a million tobacco deaths a year. 
They'll be, have too many a year by 2030. They'll have three many a year by the, by the middle of the century. India, a million tobacco deaths a year during the 2010s. Worldwide, we're probably about five million a year now, but we're heading for over 10 million a year. So with the, the logic of this is very simple. We've got about 30 million, we get about 100 million people reaching out of life every year at the moment. I mean, that will go up, as you saw. Um, of them, about 30 million become smokers. About 25 million men, 5 million women. If 30 million become smokers, on current patterns, Chinese smokers, Indian smokers don't stop. Smokers in most places don't stop. Most of those 30 million are going to keep on smoking. We're getting more than half of all, so one over 20 million are going to keep on smoking at present patterns. And we, if you're getting about half of them killed, then you're going to finish up eventually with more than 10 million tobacco deaths a year. More than 10 million a year is more than 100 million per decade. So in the second half of the century, we're going to have more than 500 million tobacco deaths. And about 150 million in the first half quarter of the century, it's about 300 million in the century, so about a billion this century. Well, by taking this seriously, we could avoid hundreds of millions of deaths. Um, at least a few hundred million of these would be avoidable. Now, the key thing is price. The French <coughs> tripled the price of cigarettes between 1990 and 2005, and consumption went down by half. And look at the French government income. It went from 6 billion euros a year to 12 billion euros a year. So, triple the price, half consumption, double take, double tax take. That's what China should be doing. You know, they get 6% government income from tobacco, and I wish they get 10% government income from tobacco. And look, there you are. There's a continuation of the graph I showed earlier. That's what's happened to French lung cancer rates in early middle age, partly because of the young men stopping and partly because of changes in the cigarette. Okay. So, and it works in Britain as well, but I'm not going to show you that. So, those are the big five. Death in old age is inevitable. Death before old age is not. And we just need to take the big numbers seriously. We need to avoid catastrophic war. We need to avoid massive famine. The Chinese managed to kill 40 million people in one famine because they didn't do pilot studies on collectivization from 1958 to 1961. God knows what epidemics might become. We can have all sorts of things going. The world could be getting much worse than it is now. But if these things don't happen, then we need to get the treatments that work actually to be used. The treatments that work for malaria, the vaccines that work, the treatments that work for secondary prevention of heart disease. They're not expensive, the things that really matter. And we shouldn't be just demanding total social change or a beautiful health service for the whole Africa. I always demand them, but also give things that work. And again, better moderate reduction in big cause and big reduction in small cause. And I'll finish with Richard, um, who <laughs> he stopped smoking cigarettes at age 37. His first results came through in 1949, just before they were published. And this is him at the age of 91 when he's announcing the 50 year results of his big study of smoking and death, which he started in 1951, followed him up to 2001, and published in 2004. And there is the press conference announcing them. He's, um, I don't know, he was enjoying life even at that age. We had a conference, as I say, to mark his uh, centenary, and you know, he would have been interested in this. He would have been interested in the results. So I think I'll stop there. Thanks very much indeed.